This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Minns. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. Jeff Bleich was US Ambassador to Australia from 2009 to 2013. A distinguished legal and political professional, he is now the chair of the Fulbright Scholarship Board and heads up the Jeff Bleich Centre for the US Alliance in Technology, Security and Governance at Plymouth University. I caught up with Jeff for a chinwag about why the Trump impeachment is bigger than the trial itself, how Mike Bloomberg could end up president, Jeff's friendship with President Obama, the attempt by the Chinese Communist Party to dominate global technology standards via 5G, why trust is central to a thriving democracy, how autocrats can never crush the human spirit, and why the most recent hacking attempts by Russian agents could impact the upcoming 2020 US presidential election. It's a fascinating and wide-ranging chat, and I really hope you enjoy it. I will say from the outset that I apologise for the slightly patchy, at times, audio. That's due to the vagaries of Australia's NBN, but hang in there because it's a cracking lesson in geopolitics, and Jeff is just an all-round good dude. Jeff Bleich, welcome to Diplomates. Thanks for joining us. Oh, glad to be here, Misha. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure's all mine. Um, now, good place, I thought, to start might be US politics. Now, a little bit about yourself. You obviously were ambassador. <laughs> a good place. <laughs> well, a good right? place to start, <laughs> or an interesting place to start, at least. Maybe yeah. not good. Um, you, of course, were ambassador to Australia, but uh, you've also been a political candidate. I'm kind of curious about what you experience as the main differences, and that's a big question, but maybe if you could maybe just give us that kind of an insights to the differences in those two roles. Yeah, they're very different. I mean, I think when you're a, when you're a diplomat, uh, particularly in a country that generally is on good terms with the United States, there's um, it, it, it's not that uh, people necessarily agree with you, but they they're, they're not immediately hostile to you. They they want to know what you have to say. Whereas when you're a political candidate, you know half the uh, half the state or half the country wants to kill you every day. So it's a little different in that sense. Um, I thought. Uh, it was more policy oriented when you're a, when you're an ambassador. The expectation is that you put politics aside and that you really focus on how do we solve problems uh, between our our nations and also how can our nations work together to address problems around the world. Whereas when you're a political candidate, it is 90 percent politics. And then I think the third big difference is money. Um, just money is a very corrosive factor in politics today. Whereas, you know, when you're U.S. ambassador, um, there are a thousand rules that keep you away from ever touching anyone's money, even your own. <laughs> so um, that, that, keeps, um, that keeps a lot of stress out of your life and has you focused really on, on issues. So uh, dramatically different roles. Yeah, well, that, I can imagine yeah, the role of money is certainly an important one. Now, speaking of uh, politics, I mean, uh, Whilst we can't predict what's going to happen as we record this, uh, the U.S. president is currently being impeached. Now, I think we can probably figure out the likely outcome. It's unlikely that you know the Republican Senate will uh, seek to convict and remove uh, the president. But what do you believe? How concerned are you about? I suppose the 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 underlying aspects of the impeachment itself in respect to the politicization of foreign interference, and you know how do you see that playing into the twenty twenty election? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm worried about the impeachment in a number of different ways. So w- one thing is the, uh, the fact that not enough people are paying attention to it. Uh, they're treating it as though it's a game, and they already know the score, and so why should they watch? When, in fact, this is an important statement about uh, our values as a country and what we think matters and what we think doesn't matter. It shouldn't it, – it, if there were a moment when – the public should be paying attention, regardless of their predisposition. I think now is one of them. So that matters. Another thing that matters to me about it is um, that there's a the allegations go to the core of our democracy, and if and if um, they don't lead to some kind of sanction this time around, we're setting a precedent for the future. So you know, uh, the president's accused of having used his his position and power of his office in order to obtain a personal benefit at the expense of our national interest. Namely, the personal benefit is getting um, dirt on a, uh, on a political opponent. And the national interest was um, congressionally approved funds being delivered to Ukraine in order for it to mount a defense against one of our adversaries. I mean, a very significant question. 
Um, I used to teach constitutional law, and that kind of an abuse was really the answer to my 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 final exam question as to what's impeachable conduct. So it's a it's a serious offense if he if if the Senate determines that um, he did engage in that behavior. What concerns me most is that so far, no one has been prepared on the Republican side to stand up and say, like, if this is true, he did a bad thing. I may not be prepared to remove him from office for it, but this is bad and it shouldn't be done by any president under any circumstances. Uh, the fact that you're not hearing Republicans at least define the debate that way, uh, the fact that the president's defense is this is a perfect phone call, the fact that the chief of staff of the president says we do this stuff all the time, um, this is this should concern every American. Uh, just about whether or not our system is reacting to issues that the framers considered core issues about our security. And then I guess the last thing is your your question, politicization. Um, I don't I, I, I don't think interference is being politicized, but I think it's being um, underappreciated because we're so focused on the impeachment. We're not focusing on how serious this this event was in um, uh, in terms of Russian interference and then. Um, you know, other ways in which foreign governments could affect the outcome of one of our elections. Um, Long answer, sir. No, that's excellent. And um, I think it's really enlightening. But I'm keen to return to the subject of foreign interference. While I was just with US politics, one final point in parallel to the impeachment, which is an enormous story, we've got another big story, which is the upcoming Iowa caucuses. How do you see the Democratic primary playing out? I might press you for a prediction, though I won't hold you to it. I've given up the prediction <laughs> game after 2016. But um, oh, and also 2019 in Australia. But um, how do you see the Democratic primary playing out? But also, how do you see the left-right divide playing out in the in the primary system itself, but then more generally um, in the general election? Yeah, well, we've narrowed the field of Democrats down from about 32 candidates to uh, six. And uh, so, and, and, you know, the six are um, Biden, Sanders, Warren, uh, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg. Those are really the the, the six who remain viable. Um, I'd say some of the energy of the party is behind people with a very strong left bent who are, you know, moving for radical changes on um, some some large scale programs, uh, and that would really be the Sanders and um, and and Warren camp. And then the other four, who I think reflect more of the, you know, the, the numbers within the Democratic Party, are reformers, but they're more pragmatic uh, reformers. They're not looking for a radical solution, radical change. I, I don't know um, how that's going to turn out. Uh, and I think a lot will depend on Iowa. If you think about the last few elections, um, everyone thought that Donald Trump's candidacy was sort of a... Um, uh, they thought it was a joke candidacy for some people, or they thought that he was doing it basically to raise his um, uh, profile for his businesses. They didn't think he actually thought he would win. Uh, but Iowa and other early primaries showed where the energy was, and it was clearly with the people who were anti-establishment. And so it ended up being Cruz and and um, and Trump at, at the end. If you look at the last election for Democrats, um, Hillary, you know, um, was supposed to be in you know, it's supposed to be easy for her. In fact, she had to go all 50 states against Bernie Sanders because the energy was really with an anti-establishment vote. So I would expect a lot of anti-establishment energy to be in the Democratic primary. But there's also going to be a lot of um, sort of pro-Obama, anti-Trump energy, which is focused more on a moderate. And those two are going to have to battle it out. In Iowa, I think, uh, depending, it's going to be very close at the top. Uh, but whether you win by 1% or lose by 2% can make a huge difference in how the narrative plays out and the momentum. Uh, so I think this will be a defining moment for the Democrats and will really winnow the field potentially smaller. Uh, I'll give you one prediction, which is if, um, if Sanders and Warren came out on top, for example, and Biden and Buttigieg were um, in third and fourth, there would probably be a lot of interest in Michael Bloomberg suddenly as someone who could, you know, have the resources to mount a strong, um, a strong campaign first against the, the hard left 
but also against Donald Trump. If, on the other hand, um, Biden and Buttigieg came in first and second, then I think you're less likely to see Bloomberg emerging um, in the field because there's a sense that there's already a couple of candidates in that lane. Um, I think most likely you're probably going to see um, one moderate and one um, uh, one hard left candidate coming out in one, two, and everyone else bunched pretty tightly behind them, the other two. And uh, we're in for a bit long, bumpy ride. And do you think, irrespective of the outcome, even if it comes down to a battle between, like, say, Sanders and Biden or Warren and Buttigieg, can the party bring itself together in a general election to because I think you know one of the outcomes of the 2016 election was that um, some of the Sanders people stayed home and refused to campaign or vote for Clinton I think that certainly impacted on her candidacy more generally yeah no I think I, I, I would expect it'll be different this time and I take some uh, some confidence in that from the midterm elections where Democrats turned out numbers that they've never turned out in before and they were pretty unanimous in their efforts to unseat um, uh, House Republicans. I think this time around, you know, uh, Democrats do know how to come back together again. People thought that the Hillary Barack divide was so great, they'd never come together. They came together very, very well. And my sense is that this time around, theoretical possibility that Donald Trump could be the president of the United States, advanced policies that we disagree with as Democrats, I think it's a certainty that he would be president if we don't come together. So I, I, I think Democrats will come together in a in, in, in much better fashion than they did last time around, both because they know the consequences um, and um, they've demonstrated the capacity to do it before. Okay, and just, yeah, well, I think that uh, hopefully you're right about that. So turning to your career as ambassador, you mentioned uh, President Obama before. He, of course, appointed you as ambassador but interesting fact mm-hmm. about your career is that you tried to recruit him when he was a precocious young law student. Um, I'm kind of curious yeah. about that story. Was it, is it, was it obvious that he was special then, given you tried to recruit him? Or Oh, yeah. No, no. The story was that uh, we were trying to recruit him to clerk for the judge that I, I clerked for on the court just below the Supreme Court. And the judge said, I shot over at uh, Harvard Law School, new president of the law review, Barack Obama. And I said, yeah, you know, he, he sounds great. I don't really know him, but, you know, everyone says he's terrific, And uh, but he doesn't really want to clerk. I think he's going to do something else, you know. So the, the judge said, well, give him a call. So I called him up, and I came back afterwards and went into the judge's chambers, and I had Obama's resume with me. And I said, well, the good news is um, that he's even better on the phone than he was on paper. I mean, he's really, really special and um, smart, funny, interesting, from Chicago, you know, where the judge is from, you'd love him. Uh, the bad news is he really doesn't want a clerk. He wants to do something good for society. So the judge said, well, give me his resume. So he, he takes it, comes back into my office a little while later, and he's holding Obama's resume. He looks at it and he goes, now this, this is the kind of guy I ought to be hiring. I'm like, like, you mean it's instead of me? He goes, exactly. Call him again. So I called him again and tried to recruit him. I never did, but uh, uh, we formed a friendship, and you know, one thing led to another after that. And so, you know, uh, before we sort of dig into the maybe specifics of the policies, um, you know, what is it about the U.S.-Australia relationship that, in your mind, makes it so special, and why is trust within that relationship so important? Well, I think you put your finger on it. It's it's about trust. Uh, there are a lot of. Um, um, alliances in the world world that are transactional. And so they're about, you know, if you do this thing for me now, I will do something for you later. Um, but uh, our, our alliance is beyond that. It's a true partnership. It's like a marriage where, you know, you're not asking every time, what do I get in return? Uh, you know that the relationship itself makes both of you stronger and better. And you're always looking for ways to be helpful to each other. And that's um, that's the foundation on which our trust was based. I think the other thing is it's very values based. You know, we've got a, a, a not just a similar set of political values in terms of free speech and freedom of religion and free markets and free um, uh, movement of people and just um, uh, uh, that ethic. But I think there's also a can do ethic. 
that's unique to us. You know, in Australia, say, you know, she'll be right, mate. And we say it'll be OK, buddy. But it's the same. It's the same message. We're very optimistic people. Um, uh, we believe we can make the world a better place. And um, then we work together to do it. It's, uh, and based on that, based on having been through a lot of tough situations that we volunteered for together, uh, there's a trust that um, allows us to do things that really no two other countries in the world um, can do together. Now, one of the big things, one of the big themes of uh, your time as ambassador, certainly an ongoing theme, is um, the relationship between the US and China, but it's very impactful on Australia's uh, geostrategic positioning. One of the big signature uh, uh, foreign policy initiatives of the Obama administration was the pivot, the Asia pivot. I mean, in your mind, was this successful? Or do you think, you know, in hindsight, the administration could have been a little tougher? I mean, at the time, the hope was a sort of engagement process that China would become a responsible actor and that it would gradually liberalise. We obviously haven't seen that now. I mean, was in hindsight 2020 or was, could, could the administration been tougher in the circumstances? No. So I think the, um, I think the pivot was successful in a number of different ways. So first, it was about integrating the, um, uh, the region in a way where the major powers could all come to the table together uh, and, and have honest conversations, not just about economics or about national security or one issue or another, but really about everything. And up until then, there had been, you know, five or six different fora. But I think we really helped cement the East Asia Summit um, as, a, as an opportunity for everyone to come together and have a honest, um, honest and, and frank conversation about issues that matter to the region and to fully integrate the U.S. into those conversations. Um, so that I thought was significant on diplomatic front. On the uh, on the security front, um, again, I think it was very successful with you know the uh, uh, rotational deployment of Marines up in Darwin, you know some airfield dispersals and a number of other things that have happened since. Um, most significantly, moving from a um, you know a fifty fifty split of our navy between the Atlantic and Pacific theaters to um, 60-40 split. So, you know, in terms of diplomatic, military, and then economic, um, you know, our our main focus at the time was uh, TPP, uh, because that was a very effective strategy of integrating our economies and to some extent, you know, counterbalancing any other uh, economy which is going to try to uh, unfairly leverage its its power in the region and and China's clearly in people's minds at the time. Uh, it was only with the election of President Trump where he uh, unsigned TPP. And if I were going to be critical of that decision, yeah, I, I I thought it was a wrong decision um, myself. But the execution of it was even worse because at that point uh, China did not want the U.S. to be part of TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and President Trump had an opportunity to say, well, we will unsign it, but only if China, you do the following seven things. Um, he didn't. He just unsigned it without any preconditions or concessions by China. And then two years later, you know, began um, a, a trade dispute. Uh, I, I think at the time uh, we were doing a pretty good job of holding the line on trade because of TPP. I think we were doing a good job of holding the line on Chinese espionage. Um, in, in, in the commercial sector um, after the Sunnylands uh, conference between President Xi and President Obama. Uh, and I think we ourselves more deeply into the region. So I think the, um, uh, the pivot uh, was successful and could have been more successful if we uh, continued some of those efforts over the past couple of years. And so you sort of touched on, I guess, the change in tone um, from the Trump administration, from the Obama administration. Um, you earlier talked about the, the fact that uh, at least the ANZUS alliance is not transactional, but President Trump would appear at least to be more transactional in the way he approaches um, foreign policy and sort of often the way that seemed to, at least from the outside, look like punishing friends and rewarding enemies. I mean, how would that challenge diplomats in the background in your, in your experience? Look, the... The way you treat family members is different from the way you treat um, business partners. Business partners, it can be purely transactional. It's only if there's something in it for you that you're going to engage in business with them. Whereas with family members, um, you, uh, you're you always finding a way to make things work. Sometimes 
um, soothing over, you know, awkward situations as opposed to ignoring them completely or being too confrontational. You, you behave with family members, you behave with allies and partners in a different way than you would behave with others where it's just purely kind of a business or geopolitical relationship. Um, we, ha we have allies and partners who continue to behave that way with us, expect us to do the same. Um, people raised to the diplomatic corps understand the difference. And, um, and then occasionally these directives come in which are at odds with those, and it throws everyone else's calculation off. And, you know, we, we're, we're trying to solve problems by predicting each other's behavior. And when you've got an unpredictable actor, it, it makes everyone alter their calculation, sometimes missing chances to agree, and sometimes creating conflict where it was never necessary. And that's, I think, what diplomats are struggling with, is the inconsistency and the unpredictability of policy in areas where we need to find an agreement because we've got much bigger things to work on together. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what working together, kind of curious, I mean, uh, you were, uh, of course, ambassador during Obama's essentially his first term and the latter half of the then Rod Gillard government. What was it like being ambassador during a period where the Labor government was essentially at war with itself, regrettably? I mean, was that something that was awkward uh, to manage? <laughs> no, you know, one of the nice things about being um, being ambassador, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, is it's not zero sum. It's not, you know, someone wins, someone loses. Um, always, this is a long-term relationship, and you're constantly looking for opportunities to do good things together. And so you develop friendships all across the political spectrum. So I got along with all of the... Um, uh, prime ministers with whom I worked and and worked with the different factions within labor as well as the different factions within the coalition and was oh, there's friendly no with factions, all mate. Yeah. <laughs> right no factions at all no I think the um, yeah uh, but but I served with well with, if you count Kevin Rudd twice I served with four prime ministers because I served with um, Prime Minister Rudd then Prime Minister Gillard then Prime Minister Rudd then Prime Minister Abbott during the time I was there and, you know, found ways to work together with all of them and really didn't get drawn into their um, uh, their conflicts with one another. Uh, but it was helpful because I, I did get insights about their conflicts with one another and was able to make better predictions about how we could um, focus our energies on things that would get support across the um, across the aisle there, as opposed to putting too much energy into things that we thought um, are kind of hopeless at the moment. Uh, and that's and that's part of why you want to have those relationships. Very diplomatically put, ambassador. But uh, <laughs> that's a period of time <laughs> I'm trying not to remember too fondly. But so turning to your, I suppose your post ambassadorial career, um, you focus a lot on foreign yeah. interference. Yeah, yeah. I've only been gone for a few months, and I had a um, came back to see President Obama. We we're in the Oval Office, and he said, "You got a lot going on down there, man." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I've been there for a few weeks, and they uh, sacked the." Opposition leader Malcolm, you know, a few months later, sacked the prime minister. Kevin Rudd, um, 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 Prime Minister Gillard, is now, you know, called a special election, and and it uh, looks like it's going to be a minority coalition. So this this you know, did, you know, because it was a you know, this this will be the first minority coalition government in um, uh, last seventy years. And President looks <laughs> me goes, "What the hell are you doing down there, Jeff? These people are our friends." So there you go. <laughs> Very good. Um, so just, uh, you know, since you've uh, left your role as ambassador, you've focused a lot on foreign interference. Um, you've set up the, the Jeff Bleich Center for yeah. the U.S. Alliance in Digital Technology, Security and Governance at the at Flinders University, which is, firstly, it's a hell of a title. Um, oh, but, thank you. It's <laughs> a, a lot of words. And, uh, but they all, they all have meaning. Yeah, um, and so the only work that. I would have taken out are the Jeff Blaise Center. That was uh, that was a very nice thing that Flinders did, where they put my name on it. But I was, you know, um, honored and uh, and surprised. Okay. Uh, but it's it it's given it, it's given me extra incentive to make sure it does its job. And uh, you know, I figure 
it's a statement of confidence that even with a name like Blaise, it can still be successful. So there you go. <laughs> and so what are you hoping for the centre? And, and firstly, what, what are its aims? And secondly, why have you set it up in Australia? Um, well, the aim is really to focus on uh, a set of challenges that are unique to democracies cr- that are created by um, digital technology um, that, that asymmetrically hurt democracies versus authoritarian governments and how we can work together as, um, as countries with our closest partners to figure out solutions to these, um, whether it just be ways in which we will combat them within our own countries, how we can combat them together, or how we can form treaties in, um, around the world that would help uh, all nations that share our values and, and uh, care about democracy and freedom uh, to, uh, to resist this, this, this movement towards um, digital abuse and authoritarianism. So that's really what it's about. It's a U.S. alliance studies in digital technology, security, and governance. And, and it's all, all of those things. The, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about specific examples if that's helpful. Well, maybe if we, so, I mean, I think the most famous example uh, of hacking or a successful hacking effort is the 2016 foreign interference into the US election. But I'm kind of interested in talking to you about this sort of concept of this new concept, whether they're talking about political warfare and, and these so-called grey zones. Can you explain what those are and, and, and how they're impacting on democracies? Oh, well, you may use different terms for it in, in Australia. So I'm, I'm, what, what do you mean by that? And then I'll tell you if I mean the same thing. Well, this sort of this um, attempt to uh, bump up against institutions and, and corrupt the discourse or um, target certain people or basically try to royal democracies using their openness against them in a way that sort of uh, makes it more difficult for democracies to operate properly because they're getting this sort of um, uh, this uh, static put through them um, in various different ways due to the interconnectedness of the world versus the closeness, yeah. I suppose, the autocratic systems uh, and that challenge that's presenting to us in the democratic free world. Yeah, no, that, that was the most diabolical aspect of the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. Look, you know, hacking into, um, uh, you know, DNC files and releasing those in a selective way to help one party versus the other, all bad. Um, but at least you knew what was happening. Um, what was going on with the uh, uh, what you're describing is this attempt to pit Americans against each other to break down our trust in one another and to dirty the information field in such a way that we didn't know what to believe by the time we got to Election Day. Uh, that's that was the concept. So they would use chatbots and others to identify extreme positions and then promote them aggressively to create this sense that the entire left or the entire right believed a particularly fringe idea and that that's what they stood for. Um, or to find hot buttons that they knew would inflame a particular group and get them to start um uh, criticizing each other with really you know, nasty terms that would just make it difficult for people to dial back and have a civil conversation about issues later. Um, they, the, the whole idea of just putting in all stories um, about nothing, but, um, but, but you know, create just ridiculous false narratives was designed to make it so that people didn't know what to trust. So, you know, you had a bunch of people wondering, is Hillary Clinton, while she's running for president of the United States, still finding time in the evenings to go run a child sex ring out of the basement of a, of a dollar in uh, suburban Maryland? You know, it seems absurd, but if people see it enough, they start to wonder, well, maybe there's some truth to it. And, and enough so that one person actually showed up with a... Uh, Assault weapon, no can fire on it. So, I mean, it's you know, the, these things that sound silly actually have dire and very dangerous real world consequences. And the, the impact of all that was that at some point, if people don't know what the truth is, they don't know what to believe, they don't know who to believe because we've broken down trust, then they either believe whatever accords with their own biases um, or they believe nothing at all and they just kind of abdicate to um, 
uh, to government to do whatever it was going to do. And both of those are absolutely destructive to democracy. Democracy is about all of us understanding facts, being able to make our own informed choices and being able to select representatives who will, in fact, represent our views on those. And once people don't know uh, what the facts are and they don't know who to trust and they can't make effective choices in their elections, um, we stop looking like a democracy anymore. And so I think, you know, you've absolutely nailed the problem. What's the solution? I mean, how do we actually deal with this question of trust, information sources and digital communications? Because this openness that we have now, you can't control your information, at least in, in Western democratic context, you can't control information at your borders anymore. So, and they don't have gatekeeping on information. So actually, how do we reverse this problem, given that it's so corrosive? So part of it is sophistication and, um, and hygiene. I think people start to learn after a while that as I keep hearing from this particular website of this particular author, never turned out to be true. Um, and in fact, um, uh, turns out that they that, that they're wrong and dangerous. Uh, and over time, uh, the public starts walking away from people like that. Uh, I think you're probably going to come up with, you know, greater um, criticism of groups like that. In the sense that uh, people on the on the right will start criticizing far right views as damaging to their to their own brand and people in the moderate left will do the same thing to you know extreme and un, um, and irresponsible news sources on the left so there's there's human nature uh, we we really depend on timely reliable accurate information in every aspect of our lives and at some point when we're not getting it uh, we react and start behaving differently so I'm counting to some extent on human nature. I think the second thing that you count on is technology getting better and better at being able to detect lies and out them. One of the advantages of AI, frankly, is that things that are demonstrably false uh, will be able to uh, identify those in real time and then um, uh, start, you know, start educating people to take a pause, check this site, and get the accurate information. And at some point, I think they'll be able to. You know, the problem of, uh, I think Mark Twain said, you know, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth has got its pants on. Um, so, you know, this goes back 100 years. But uh, it, it's at hyperspeed right now in the Internet age. But we have some technological tools that will help us with that. Um, I think you're going to start to see crowdsourced information um, in the news, which will help people with that that same challenge, uh, and so I I, I I don't despair that you know we we've, we've outthought ourselves and we can never fight back to accuracy again. Uh, I think we've always managed to do it in the past, and I think we'll do it again this time. It's just going to be a a, a challenging effort uh, given the the acceleration of tech, technology. And so. What's the role you know, of U.S. social media companies in this, in being responsible actors, given so many people now get their news from social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., and they have algorithms that essentially favor outrage, which then favors extremism, and then there's a problem with fake accounts. I mean, what is their role in, I suppose, safeguarding democracy? Well, they're all starting to, to encounter a, a backlash, which you know, is referred to as the tech lash, uh, because of people's uh, frustration with the failure of these platforms to, to actually address the negative consequences. And they, they insist that they are platforms, that they're not um, news sources, they're not responsible for the news, and that they shouldn't be held to the same standards as journalists. But at the same time, um, they're now appreciating that in order for their brand to be respected and for people to actually trust their platforms, they need to do more fact checking, and so uh, Facebook has brought in, I think, um, you know, journalists from the Washington Post to hire a number of other journalists fact checking on pieces that appear on their website, and to either take down things that are demonstrably false, or at least put up warnings in advance that there are questions about the accuracy of certain facts uh, stated in the piece, 
um, you see Google and um, Twitter saying that they are not going to run political ads um, um, that contain false information. You know, there, there, there is a, there, there's a movement. Um, in fact, I think they decided to take down all political ads simply because they didn't want to be in a position where uh, they had to make those make those fine determinations. But they're they're all stepping up in different ways to address it in response to consumer demand and uh, and other political pressure. That's healthy. That's how democracy is supposed to work. And so, just turning to the global challenge here, I mean. Uh, one of the things I think Australia and the US are in lockstep on is this, I mean, it's been described as a sort of a Chinese Communist Party techno-nationalism, you know, the so-called China 2025 plan where they, the regime wants to dominate a whole host of critical uh, technologies, including AI, which you touched on earlier. I mean, do you think this is a new bipartisan position in the US and does the President, you know, President Trump have a point in the way he's addressing this this challenge? Yeah, no, I think I think there's bipartisan support. In fact, if anything, the Democrats may be even stronger in their uh, uh, in their concerns about it. Uh, perhaps in part because of the experience from 2016, where they were the um, uh, the victims of foreign interference and um, their appreciation that uh, what they did is child's play compared to what can be done in the future. So the the techno nationalism that you're describing really comes down in many ways to the architecture of um, the Internet of Things. And if it's connected through 5G systems that are controlled by uh, by China, uh, there's a real risk that those could be used to establish a an effective surveillance state that would keep um, uh, uh, Chinese citizens and countries that are in the you know, Chinese um, you know, supply chain and orbit and, and you know, strategic area uh, in line. And that would be used also as a check on efforts by the West to, um, uh, you know, to impose their own human rights values on China or other countries uh, and could also be used as an econ- economic tool uh, to advantage China over other countries. Um, you could easily see a... Um, uh, a balkanization around the world of some countries that have uh, surveillance states that use um, the Internet of Things in an authoritarian manner, and then other countries which are working to ensure uh, that we maintain our, our freedoms. And in those cases, you would have two, two completely different economic systems um, in competition again, and really kind of a digital iron curtain could fall if we, if we don't address this now. And so essentially, yeah, this question of a, a digital iron curtain or a decoupling, um, do you, how do you see one of the things that I think is interesting or at least puzzling in the debate at the moment, um, there seems to have been this sort of split um, in the West even about how to approach the question of 5G, particularly uh, Chinese technology via Huawei. How do you see the British approach as a Five Eyes partner in the, in the Five Eyes Security Alliance? How do you see their approach to Huawei where they've essentially not, sought to introduce or at this stage don't want to introduce a blanket ban in the way that Australia and the United States and New Zealand have? Yeah, well, you know, the, uh, the UK uh, uh, didn't follow an initial advice from the intelligence uh, communities of other, other countries and even some of their own intelligence um, community and went ahead with an infrastructure that included uh, Huawei equipment, but it was supposed to also have a, um, um, you know, a monitoring system. The monitoring system has proven not to be workable, um, but now they're stuck with a very big investment and being asked to tear it all out and start again uh, is a is a major challenge for the country. And so, their you know their their softer position, I think, decisions that were made several years ago and ones that uh, I think there uh, you know there 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 is some apprehension about today it also explains why uh, it's so important at this point to to make these decisions strategically and thoughtfully and deliberately 
because once you've made the decision, um, you start going down a rabbit hole at a relatively fast pace. And it's much harder to, to climb back out afterward. And so just on that, I mean, this debate is not just contingent, you know, in Five Eyes countries. Germany, to a broader extent, the broader European Union are, are uh, debating this question of 5G technology and the role of Huawei. Where do you think the debate will end up in, in Germany? Because, again, they're taking what would appear to be at least a bet each way at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of others is that they don't want to needlessly antagonize China. What they would like, and I think what we'd all like, is to find a way in which we could um, have a robust trade relationship with all countries in the world, including in our digital space, um, but also have some assurances that um, it won't be used to undermine our, our security or economic well-being down the road, that we chose one system versus another. But the fact that they have not embraced Huawei technology and that Nokia and Ericsson and other European um, 5G manufacturers have been ramping up their efforts, suggests to me that um, Germany shares some things we've articulated here. This, this question about human rights and values, and but also technology, I mean, how do you see that playing out? I mean, the Human Rights uh, Watch uh, uh, group recently came out and essentially warned of a techno-dystopia emerging if Chinese technology and an autocratic regime comes to dominate global affairs. I mean, how concerned are you about something like that? And what can democracies do about being more assertive in values, about human values and their role in technology? Look, I mean, we are, we're dependent at this point. And I think there's a, um, a desire, you know, around the world for us to, to remain interdependent. It's a good way of reducing the risk of conflict. And so I think, you know, China, just as much as the United States is looking to increase the, you know, quality of life and the length of life and the well-being of its people and, and to, you know, um, uh, do the same for its allies and friends around the world. And so there is, we don't have to go into a dystopian world. It's not inevitable. Um, it's going to be a matter of choices. But we're we're starting to make the decisions now. Uh, we'll either make it high, much more likely that we'll go into a dystopian future, um, or much easier for us to avoid it. And that's why, you know, we we. We have failed to take um, uh, heed of warnings in areas like climate change, uh, and we're paying a huge price for it right now. Um, we don't want to make the same mistake here in the digital space in terms of having um, security and governance front of front of mind as we're making these critical decisions. And given that we're heading into an important election season in the United States, um, I think one of the things that would have disturbed a lot of people, the 2016 election, the Mueller report, even the impeachment currently underway with the arguable uh, presidential interference into a potential rival candidate. How concerned are you about these reports of new Russian hacking um, into some of the uh, uh, electoral infrastructure of the US? And has that got enough attention, in your opinion? No, it hasn't gotten nearly enough attention. And look, I've been saying for a while, whatever Russia did last time, they're not just going to do that this time. They may they may figure, okay, we've taught the rest of the world how to do that. They'll do it for us. Um, they're going to do something different. We know that in the last election, Russia had um, hacked into voter rolls for 40 different states in the United States. And it was only when they were called out by our uh, intelligence agencies at the highest level and advised, you know, that we have countermeasures that would be much more painful to them, uh, that they backed off on what appeared to be a deliberate plan to hack into uh, certain kinds of voting machines in order to change the outcome of elections. We also know that our voting machines are vulnerable and, and really can, uh, in some cases, you could change the uh, a person's vote and there's no paper backup to ensure that people could audit it and determine whether or not a machine had been compromised. Um, so we have, we have real vulnerabilities, and it should be something that is front of mind for Americans and, and you know, a major focus of law enforcement around the world and for our media to prepare people for 
demanding from their elect, you know, electoral officials, uh, paperback every single vote. So, and, and an audit of every, you know, of every voting, uh, location. I mean, that should be standard. You know, so I am, I am very worried about it. Well, we use high tech paper and pencil in Australia, so, um, it's more difficult to hack at least. It's one of the advantages of a low tech system, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Although it may be that you're using scanners and other things, um, so hopefully you're, you're also doing audits afterwards to make sure that the scanners haven't been compromised. Well, uh, one would hope. I mean, it's certainly something that I think it requires uh, enormous uh, vigilance. Um, so yeah. the last question before we go to the really last uh, hokey question, um, you know, you're someone who describes themselves as an optimist. When I look at the sort of the world, it's divided now into kind of opened and closed. And, you know, and it used to be believed that openness would always prevail. Bill Clinton famously said, you know, those who think they can control the internet, it's like nailing jello to a wall. Good luck with that. But it almost feels now that <laughs> open systems uh, are sailed from all, all different directions and the closed systems don't have these same vulnerabilities. You know, do you see... How can that be reversed, and how can openness become a virtue and not be like a bit of a crutch as it currently is? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think we originally imagined digital technology um, proliferating openness, and to some extent it did. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, the Arab Spring, that was really a reflection of the fact that social media was able to create an environment in which um, disorganized rabbles could, could overthrow a dictator. Uh, and I think the, you know, the the lesson that we learned from the from that period is that uh, we got a little bit out over our skis. <laughs> we were we were so confident that digital technology could only be used for good that we forgot that dictators were watching the same thing, and they were thinking, "Look, if a disorganized rabble uh, can use this tool." in order to accomplish this. Imagine what we can do with all the power of the government and military force and money and organization behind us. Um, just think how, how, how much we could weaponize um, uh, digital information. So uh, they've demonstrated that over the last few years and it has strengthened the hand of authoritarians. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, this tool will only be used for bad going forward. I think we've gotten a wake up call that this, this technology really can promote open societies and bring us closer together as people and reduce friction between countries and increase our understanding of what is true and allow us to solve massive global problems in a way and at a scale that we never would have been able to in the past, whether that is contagions moving around the world or whether it is climate change or whether it is you know this, this issue itself, the digital um, structure itself. Uh, we'll be able to do things that we could never have accomplished uh, without this technology. Uh, I, I, so I remain an optimist. I think there's work to be done, uh, but we got the wake-up call that we needed, and now we just need the political will uh, to put some real uh, muscle behind it um, so that we can, we can make tomorrow better than it's been. Do you, do you take some confidence out of the sort of courage you've seen in people of Hong Kong and the recent Taiwan elections where, despite all the, the threats and pressure that have been placed upon people in those areas, that they still have, have voted for self-determination and freedom? I think that should give us all confidence, but how do you see that particular way that that's played out for this, the uh, CCP regime over 2019 into 2020? Yeah, no, absolutely. You see it in Turkey, you see it in Hong Kong, you see it around the world, and and it's because, frankly, uh, there is a there's an innate instinct in us as a species, as people. Um, we want freedom. We want. We, 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 why why on earth does a person stand in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square? You know why does someone throw a minefield in the demilitarized zone? Why did you know people? lose their lives trying to, you know, cross the Berlin Wall. Um, it's that impulse where at some level people say, I would rather um, die than live without freedom. Um, and they are willing to do extraordinary things to accomplish it. So I, I, I take great comfort from that impulse, that instinct in all of us um, that you see manifested in some of these elections and, and in 
individual acts of courage and heroism. Absolutely, and I think that's that's a, a, a beautiful place to finish up. Now, of course, I, I have one of my trademark uh, clunky segues into the final question, which is, um, and you know, you've it's a little bit, maybe a bit easier for you, having given your time in Australia. Sometimes this stumps some of uh, my guests who can't really name three Australians beyond Crocodile Dundee, but um, three Aussies, alive or dead, at uh, Ambassador Blyche's place for a barbecue. Who's coming and why? Um, let's see who's coming to my, uh, to my barbecue. This, this, well, you know, everyone, everyone who's left off this list will be angry. So, uh, let me, let me pick, um, just three iconic Australians. Um, one of them would be, uh, Paul Keating. I just think he's brilliant and, um, uh, you know, his, uh, his insights are invaluable. Um, I think, think I'd pick Lindsay Fox because uh, he is the uh, he, he is what every billionaire should aspire to be um, just uh, generous thoughtful down to earth and uh, and make your money the, the 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 right way fairly and honestly um, and then the third one um, probably Lisa Wilkinson because um, after her long career in journalism and the courage she's shown, um, she she knows the dirt on everyone and she would tell it. So there you go. <laughs> uh, so you have a, a, a journalist, a prime minister, and a billionaire um, at an ambassador's barbecue. Sounds like a pretty good party. Yeah, sounds uh, – get a couple of meat pies and some uh, – Sausages. It's a it's a perfect night. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Ambassador Jeff Blush, and uh, good luck uh, in the upcoming primary season for the Democrats. Oh, thanks so much, Misha, and uh, and thanks for having me on Diplomates. Before you run off, if you could quickly jump onto iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and give the show a rating and review, it would be really beneficial. Ratings and reviews help lift the rankings of the show, make sure that algorithms are recognizing the show and showing it to other people and spreading the word. Hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.